Hi, and welcome back or welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. I am your host, Dave Mullins, COO of the Intercollegiate Tennis Association. Today, I'm honored to share with you my conversation with two living legends of our industry. Dave Fish and Steve Smith have been working tirelessly for many decades to make tennis more accessible to the masses. I can't do either of them justice in my short introduction, but here is a brief background on both my guests. Dave Fish is the former head men's coach at Harvard, winning 21 Ivy League titles during his 42-year tenure. After his retirement from college coaching in 2018, he served as Director of Development for UTR. He was also inducted into the ITA Hall of Fame in 2019. Steve Smith is the founder and co-director of Great Base Tennis and has spent almost 50 years studying the game of tennis, developing tennis players and educating coaches. He has worked as a tennis educator for families, federations, universities and associations in over 30 countries. In this podcast, we discuss a lot of different matters, including what role college coaches play in the advancement of the sport of tennis and how coaches can become better teachers of the game to their teams and community members. Now, here is my conversation with Dave and Steve. Dave Fish, Steve Smith, welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. Thanks so much for uh, coming on and, and educating our college coaches. Thanks, Dave. Nice, nice to be on. And uh, you guys have been working hard during this COVID time. So uh, congratulations to the ITA, you and Tim, for sort of soldiering on. <laughs> I pre- appreciate that, Dave. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a it's been a long few months, and and maybe some difficult months still ahead of us. But I think we're all uh, hoping and praying for a, a regular fall tennis season. But time will tell. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? I can't wait to get back and see the teams play. Yeah, yeah, me that too. Would be great. Yeah, well, Dave, obviously, I've known you for many years. We've served on operating committees together, and and uh, Steve, I've just got to know you recently in the last few months, and have been devouring your content. And, and absolutely enthralled with it and, and hope that our college coaches will continue to take a deep dive into the materials you're putting out there because I think it's a huge benefit to them. Usually I'm interviewing uh, college tennis coaches and obviously both of you have experience in that space, but really trying to get into a conversation uh, about some of the bigger picture topics and and maybe we're not getting into the nuts and bolts of how to be a a college tennis coach. We'll get into that certainly, but there's other areas that I'm just uh, excited to pick your guys' brains on and hear your experiences and and learn from you guys as I know our coach are too. So let me get right into the questions. There's been a, a lot of discussion uh, in in recent decades on everything that tennis is doing wrong, whether it's in this part of the world or maybe Western Europe. And we like to focus on those and, and the numbers of players playing and uh, kind of the, I guess, internal fights maybe between the alphabet soups that are going on. But what are some of the things that the world of tennis are getting right at this time and that maybe we should be celebrating doing more of? Yeah, well, I, I think it's a great question. Um, I always, uh, you know, when I had kids on my team complain about this or that, I said, you know, I, I do what presidents of companies try to do. I said, let's spend 10% of our time defining the problem. And then don't tell me about the problem. Tell me what your solutions are for it. And so, you know, people know me from my association with the, the sort of evangelization of UTR and its potential for level-based play. But that was a simply an effort to say, look, Europe has been doing this approach for many, many years. And now we're doing much more of that in the United States. It still is a very rough territory where this is happening. So that there's some great examples of level-based play. The ITA Summer Circuit, for instance, is doing much more of that. The Pro Series UTR is doing. So everybody's sort of making these halting steps forward. But it's very hard, as you said, with this alphabet soup to keep people 
keep people moving. But I think the two major pressure points, you know, if we if we said so, one is people aren't getting opportunities to play competitively, and and the cost of the game is is tremendous now because we've based our system on being able to travel extensively. That's going to work for an increasingly smaller number of people. Now you've got COVID, but you've also seen people come out in the millions to the public parks. So it means there's opportunity still. Tennis is a wonderful lifetime sport that we have. So we really have a treasure. It's just how do we protect the treasure? How do we grow it? How do we nurture it? Et cetera. So efforts like Steve Smith, the Great Base Initiative, and the efforts to create opportunities for level-based play for more kids so that we make getting into competition not stressful, but rather exciting, intrinsically motivating. And the other big hole in our leaky bucket of tennis is we're not converting many kids from this red, orange, and green space into a yellow ball event. They're, they're intimidated by it. And so Steve's efforts, our efforts to, to sort of build more local opportunities, make tennis more affordable and accessible. That's really where we have to get back to the grassroots. It's not some big national, international mandate that's going to do it. It's going to be people getting together locally and collaborating to create more opportunities to to basically create this tennis village idea, this idea that the whole village is necessary to lift everybody up because each each locale is different. It's got different facilities. It's got different kinds of players. It's got different philanthropists and sponsors, et cetera. And it's up to each individual group to say, how can we make the best of our advantages? And so what you're going to do in the Pacific Northwest is going to be different than what you do in Southern Cal. And and people like Steve are, are trying to present opportunities for kids to learn, much like the Khan Academy uh, is doing for education. They're trying to make a world-class education available for anybody anywhere in the world at no cost. Wouldn't that be marvelous if we could do that in tennis? Yeah, for sure. And and Steve, same question to you. What are What are maybe some of the things we are getting right now um, we need to do more of. I think one thing in tennis is we have four Super Bowls. I mean, the Grand Slams, I mean, it's a big high. I think what Dave talked about with grassroots level, the game is too expensive, too expensive to learn, it's too expensive to play. Um, no, but I, I think that improvements in tennis, I think that people know a lot more about nutrition, a lot more about fitness. I think even the analytics for sports psychology. So I think there's a lot of positives in that direction. I do think with technique and, and, and tactics, you know, like what happened to serve volley doubles. I mean, now we have so many one-dimensional players. And I give myself a little trouble where you I would go to a junior tournament, you'd be there for three days and not see anybody hit an overhead, a volley. There's all these lost arts. I say uh, clones taught by clowns. I mean, we have to stop and go, wait a minute. <laughs> I do think that if we look back at history, history is the best teacher. You couldn't be a ranked player in the U.S. at one time until you were 13. And now by the time a kid's 13, you know, you may have five years of experience of you know, trying to win and trying to win the wrong way. But no, I think there's been a lot of improvements on the physical side of tennis away from the court. There's so many things to address, not to be doom and gloom, but, you know, like what happened to high school tennis? I mean, I think that the program should be bigger than the individual. So I think, again, with all the, you mentioned Dave Mullins, all the, the alphabet soup is getting people to work together. But I, I think that's where the internet been around for, I think, 30 years now. and so much bad information going out so fast. But I, I think the big improvement with what tennis players are doing off the court, but not so much on the court. I mean, at the very highest levels, I think that's where, again, there's, I think that falls high with watching Super Bowl, the Super Bowls of tennis or Grand Slams. And then it comes through the tennis channel and it's total access to watching world-class players. 
but what's going on at the the, the grassroots of the public park, uh, mom or dad practicing with their kid in the basement, that type of thing. So, uh, you know, we've listed some of the things that are, are going well, some of the things that are not going so well. But if you guys, I guess, were the, the czars or the dictators of, of tennis globally, what is some of the low-hanging fruit that you grab straight away and, and implement those changes and start working towards more positive change? I, I think that I, I sort of alluded to the idea, uh, it, much the way the, the National Junior Tennis and Learning Program started initially with Arthur Ashe and, and Ray Benton and Charlie Passarell, is that they recognized that tennis development was really a local issue. Is that players have often, you know, some coach brings them along, gets them to believe in themselves, gets them to love the sport. And I think we've tried uh, when, when Steve was kind enough to say, you know, we've we've tried a lot of things and some things haven't worked. Well, if you're trying to treat cancer, you actually want to look at the negative results as positive data. That actually tells you where not to put your energy. And we've seen historically you place see places like Croatia and Serbia and and is that players come out of these small pockets of systems. They don't tend to come out of nationally mandated program. So the USDA, it, through its best efforts, has really tried to see if that if that was a way to develop players. But I think most people have come to the conclusion that, do you look at the players that are still developing in college, the Dominic, the, uh, Dominic Kepfers and the James Blakes and the uh, Isners? Well, if you create more opportunity for more people, that's probably a more likely place to nourish the individual efforts of different academies, different professionals, et cetera. So, so I think localizing and creating more opportunity local is going to encourage probably thousands more people and families to try to climb the ladder. And, and so I think that's where we can collaborate. And as I've, as I've said, it's kind of ironic that 11 years after we introduced UTR, the tennis world is still um, back and forth about which rating system is more accurate. The whole idea of a rating system is merely to group people for better level-based play. And whatever you use, it's still a number. Kids shouldn't be anxious about their number. Uh, and I think we can do some things about that. And, and we need to create more opportunities for kids to stay close to home so that a family can afford it. And if, if we can do that, and the NJTLs uh, are the example, they've been organized locally. And so the ability to organize smaller groups, kind of subsets, mini circuits of kids around the world or around the United States is, it, to me, it's low-hanging fruit. And COVID has shown us that people are willing to come out locally. And they probably have less expendable income. They probably are more cautious about traveling. You know, we thought it would just disappear, but now with Delta, it's an uncertain landscape again. But tennis is thrives locally. And that's what happened in the in the tennis boom. People were out in thousands. They were waiting in line for courts. We can go back and address some of those things like making tennis more accessible, more easier to learn. Maybe with things like, you may have heard me mention spec tennis. Yep. Spec tennis is, is simply tennis on a little court. But unlike the red, orange, and green space where you have four different balls and four different rackets and four different, three different size courts, maybe it's a lot simpler than that. And maybe tennis needs simple instead of overcooked. And so we need to use that data that we're getting. Try some kids with spec. I think they develop their tools faster. Steve and I have talked about how can he make his 
video checklist checkpoint for the different strokes available using an example of a young kid playing with a paddle because historically that's where Althea Gibson, Pancho Gonzalez, that's where they grew up playing with wooden paddles in the park. Now imagine if we just lowered the barrier entry and every kid could go find a pickleball court, which is what spec is played on, and play it for very low cost. That a public park or, or a camp could introduce these things to where the racket didn't go out of date when the kid grew two inches. And you can go find a pickleball court because, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. And so ten, tennis purists know that pickleball, as much fun as it is and as social as it is, is not a bridge sport in the tennis. Whereas a, a spec experience hitting through the ball the way Roger Federer's coach taught him to do, those are the skills that the game actually brings better technique out in us. And it's also simple opportunities for kids to learn to compete locally with a simpler game. Mm -hmm. And maybe is that an opportunity for us to get more kids playing this kind of, I call it, a. we tend to put kids in this, I call it the the bath, the, the warm bath and the rubber ducky, which is what the red, orange and green space is. It's a very safe space. It's fun. There's no rankings. There's no stresses. And then we wonder when we throw them into a cold mountain lake, why they say, God, I got to get out of here fast. <laughs> and so can we create this wading pool experience that is fun? Kids can play little four-point games. It's no ad scoring. Have we made tennis too difficult to learn in this very fast-paced world? And so then if you use competition to fuel the desire to get better, then you make these tools available for kids to look up great base initiative, to learn better footwork. So it, it, are we are we designing, let's reverse engineer this to build on competition first that drives people to improve rather than selling the financial model of let's instruct everybody, see how much money we can make. And oh, by the way, if they don't learn to play on Sunday, that's not our problem. And that historically is how tennis, in, is certainly in the United States, has become a very instruction-driven model because it's the way a lot of people do well. And Steve, anything to add to that? Well, history. So Dave mentioned Althea Gibson, Pancho Gonzalez, Bobby Riggs as well. Uh, but then you give the NGTL, Charlie Passerell, one of the founders, he was taught by Welby Van Horn. That comes to me, that's history as well. The Welby Van Horn method, the balance method. And you know why was he so successful? But one thing has gone away is kids don't play mini tennis anymore. Um, Kyle LaPro is here today visiting, and he's been in Boca Raton for many years, a teaching professional. And he's talking about when he was very young, he was at Saddlebrook. And Hing has played 45 minutes of mini tennis every day. Sebastian Corda, who's one of the best upcoming Americans, played mini tennis. And it used to be you could just play service line to service line. And the rule was, don't hit the ball hard. You know, you know, taking a rubber band and, you know, maybe if it's not a cutoff racket, because back in the day, wooden rackets, just take a rubber band and choke up on a tennis racket like it's a, a baseball bat. But I do think that kids get lessened out, programmed out. And, you know, we don't have ladders anymore. We don't have backboards. They're not, they're not even being built. So you like, you know, you got to have fun. Let's just go play. Let's play mini tennis. Here are the rules. You play service line to service line. Now, I, I do think that, like, say, the 60 foot court with the green dot ball. I mean, there's a lot of positives to that. I think they're good. The, the, the three color balls are great training tools. But, you know, I, what happened to mini tennis? I think there's so many things. Technology is not all for the best. Uh, YouTube. I'm just going to watch YouTube and I'm going to try to bang it forehand. And it's just, as I said earlier, it's just one kid, you know, matching the kid on the other side trying to bang it forehand. Uh, but yeah, I think history, you know, 
TT pros should know about Welby Van Horn. He's one of the pillars of the great base. And I do think that there's, there's way too much ego in tennis teaching. I think the fact that people can be paid right away. You know, I grew up in a sport where all the coaches were volunteers. And I think that's what's great about the time about the local level. I think the local level is easier to raise money. People want a hometown hero. And then also to you know, fill, fill courts that are empty. I always kids that come to visit us. I work very much as a supplemental coach where people send players to me and say, are there any courts by your house? And they always, they say, yes. Are they empty? They say, yes. You don't have to have the cash register there for two kids to go out play mini tennis. And yeah, Dave sent us some spec rackets and they're fantastic because, and I love that term bridge sport. Um, I think we've lost out. I mean, I mean, and that's where the USPTA PTR have been a member of Chester for 40 years. And now they're promoting the casual sport pickleball with I think we've lost people because now older people like myself, you know, they're, they're playing with a modern day racket. The game's a little bit too fast and they're just slapping the ball with these graphite rackets. But yeah, I think getting people on the court and go, hey, you can just go play. Almost, I tell kids, if you're on the tennis court and every time you're on the tennis court, you're with a paid professional, that means you're not going to be very good. I mean, it's just, you got to go play. It still works in piano where a kid takes one lesson a week. Years and years ago, that was the way it was. Is you um, would just take a private lesson. I don't think junior tennis players now make any phone calls. They're never calling up a, an adult and saying, hey, you, would you like to play? So there are, there are lots of problems. I might circle back around to that, but I, I definitely want to get into the summer camps a little bit. Obviously, many of our coaches run summer camps. Uh, if they're not, they're maybe running programming throughout the year for small groups, adults, kids, players of all levels, and, and obviously get to touch the sport in many different ways. And so, Dave, you you... At one point in your career, you brought Steve in to really revamp your summer camps. You recognize that your summer camps could play a critical role in the development of kids within your area, within your community, and, and maybe beyond that. And so, can you tell us a little bit about why you brought Steve in, why you thought your camps needed to be revamped, and uh, maybe some you know, give us a sense of how those camps improved in your view and, and, and where they're at now. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and I always appreciate the chance to talk about why we brought Steve in and, and what we learned from it and what a huge difference it made because I thought I was quite a good coach up till that point until I started listening to Steve. <laughs> I, I've, I've been thinking the same thing, Dave. <laughs> and, and uh, I know about myself, Steve, not about you. Yeah, uh, no, every time I, I listen, you know, I'm like, man, yeah. I was just a worthless coach. And, and so, you know, so, so we're like the public park players that kind of learned a lot of things. We became pretty good players <laughs> and we sort of convinced ourselves we must know a lot. Right. Yep. We've got these prestigious jobs. Yep. And then we really see, you know, this kind of camp rat, Steve Smith, who went around to learn from every great coach in the country. Well, this is a, this is like the Encyclopedia Britannica to understand. So, so we found that no matter how uh, good an instructor or good a player we could hire for our camp, and we were hiring 30, 35 coaches a summer, most of them college players. We couldn't hire high school coaches if it wasn't allowed from NCAA recruiting rules. But no matter what they did, they all came in and they taught what they knew. And so if you move from court to court, well, let's work on your serve today. There's no consistency to it. And, uh, and I learned about Steve through our women's coach, Gordon Graham, who had been exposed to Steve. Gordon said, 
we, we should bring Steve in because he really knows what he's doing. I said, great, let's go it. And Steve came in and blew us away, basically can work the longest hours. So, you know, we had to rescue our staff for a while in these trainings because he, Steve will go on forever. But, but we noticed that we hired other people. We had wonderful people coming in before then. We were trying to solve for this the same way. So we looked at game-based solutions. Wayne Bryan came in and did a wonderful training for us. Uh, Butch Staples from Chicago did a great job. These are giants in their work, but it didn't allow us to standardize anything. And as soon as Steve left, as much sense as it made, we began to sort of go back to what we knew. There was nothing sticky. So eventually, we realized that we needed to hire one of Steve's protégés to come up and be our tennis director. And when no, there was no longer a protégé to hire... We basically said, Steve, we can we send someone down to work with you for a couple of months mm-hmm. and train them? And that's when our, our teaching just took off because we literally were then were, were able to be little pilot systems of the Great Base. We did a Tuesday morning stroke of the week where we would videotape everybody and they had to go through the checkpoints. And we had some funny moments because we would all sit there and look at it before camp started and see how people butchered it. And we'd have a good set of laughs and they'd have to go back and get it right. And at the end, we will, we, we've got so many kids that can go back and teach now for a living and understand how to do it. And the standardization of our, of our on-court work became enormous, so much so that we took a great video one time of this 14-year-old kid who'd come to camp for two weeks and he ran a class of 15, 20 kids doing it because Steve's great Bates approach has a lot of peer teaching. So it's a word picture method. And as Steve always said, he was just trying to equip a kid to get to first base. Let's give a kid the tools that he needs to succeed. If his talent takes him to second base and third base, great. But let's give him a great foundation Mm. or a great base. And so for us, it was transformative for our camp. And kids came away loving it. It was consistent. They, they couldn't wait to come home and show their parents what they'd learned. So the parents would come in and say, well, my son gave me a lesson last night. And so these are the kind of things that we can do to make tennis more accessible and to make world-class coaching available for more people. It doesn't have to be priced at $110 an hour for everybody. Otherwise, tennis is going to become like polo. Right. You know, it's like, it's just, if, if you can't afford it, it just become it's done by the people that can afford it. Mm-hmm. And everybody gets trophies at the end, but it sure doesn't develop a lot of great players. Yeah. So, Steve, obviously, you know, you can't be at every college campus uh, um, every summer and training people and all the rest of it. But what are some things that coaches can start doing or, or implementing in their summer camps to make them a better experience for the, the players and also give them the foundation that, that Dave has alluded to there? Well, I think most summer camps, most tennis camps, maybe just straight across the board, more of an experience than an education. And I think the tennis teaching industry, you know, you can break it down and say, well, is, is this program service-based or is it education-based? And obviously, it needs to be both. Um, I think to get the community involved, I mean, I know you have to deal with ITA or NCA rules. I mean, that's a factor. I think to get the club team involved, I think to have a, a mission where people have to give back. I think that team players, I mean, if they were to go out and try to play with their opposite hands, so righty tries to play lefty, lefty tries to play righty, Tennis is a very, very difficult sport. We have getting more fans to come out. You know, to, to, you have to give to get. You know, I, we talked about it briefly. 
the rule, it, uh, I think it varies maybe from one division to the next. But I know some some schools have grad assistants and some schools don't. But a lot of the, the top teams in Division One have three coaches, and the third one is a volunteer. Is education, education, education. Just because you can play doesn't mean that you can teach. So they, you know, people, you need to have a curriculum. You need to have a pathway. You know, the, the great base. Uh, Andy Fitzsells helped out so much here. You know, Andy, twenty years, but he's been here two years with his wife, and they've done so much to help get the word out. We tell people what we could call great base, solid fundamentals. I, you know, how, how can you argue with having a great base? But, but I do think that they think of it as uh, or Steve and Andy stuff. But you know, people need to study. And I think Dave could talk about, you know, I think of uh, so many people that we train that work on Brandon Flanagan. We have this one course, Tennis Intelligence Applied. And that was really, you know, Dave, we need to thank Dave for that idea because, I mean, I used to just travel with a big bag of VHS tapes way back in the day. And, um, but Brandon ran his camp one summer as the, the director. And you don't have to go through all 365. But can we agree on the ready position? Can we agree that the tennis court's a rectangle? And we agree that the strings have to be facing a certain way at the impact point. I do think that top players in the world, we're so fortunate to have them, but that's inspiration. But we have to separate inspiration from instruction. You know, we, we just know that, you know, kids are just YouTube clips and potato chips. They're looking at so many YouTube clips. But um, <laughs> in, 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 in other sports, are we going to argue about how to come out of the starting blocks? I mean, does, does a basketball player say to his coach, well, this is going to be my style and on a shot from the foul line? It just takes place in tennis where we don't teach basic. Right. And, and yeah, that was what I wanted to get to a little bit as well, because obviously, like you said, a lot of our coaches are splitting their time between college coaches. I think when people think of college tennis, they think of, you know, the big brand name schools and, and the coaches with the, the assistant coach and the volunteer and the strength and conditioning coach and, and all the other bells and whistles. And the reality is a lot of our coaches are, are part-time college coaches and they make their living by teaching tennis at parks, at clubs, country clubs, running their own academies on their tennis courts. So is there a big divide when teaching the fundamentals of the game between kind of recreational players and collegiate players? Obviously, Dave, you've had that experience with Steve. So you've seen both sides of it. And Steve, you talk a lot about uh, on, on your podcast, your experiences with Craig Tiley and him implementing those fundamentals with the with the recreational player and also with the college teams. And we all know the the success that Dave's teams have had and Craig Tiley's teams have had. But I'm interested in, I think coaches sometimes think that these are two completely different worlds and they might be closer than than coaches think. Yeah. No, I think that's a that's a that's a great connection because what's interesting to watch about watch when people work with Steve year on year, you can actually see them continue to improve. And, and Steve said something that was very interesting to me when we talked a week or so ago. He said, look, we're interested in taking C-level athletes and turning them into A-level performers. Mm. And he said, and we've got a lot of great athletes out there, uh, much as they say, you know, America doesn't attract the best athletes, but there are a lot of fine athletes playing sure. tennis out there. But they're often dealing with an incomplete toolkit and don't continue to improve through college. And so I think the challenge is, I think the more educated a college coach becomes, Comes, the more they will see that the connection between the basic fundamentals, teaching a kid about percentage posts and, you know, just the basic odds, good volleying position, all, all these things that we sort of piece together on our own. We come up with our own kind of quilt 
of skills and things we learn from each other. But when you begin to put it into a vocabulary, that's when your players begin to reinforce each other. So like our summer camp, where, where the players are reinforcing each other and the instructors are reinforcing each other, having a, a solid grasp of the fundamentals, the science behind it, and the vocabulary means that you're all talking the same language. So when you watch a video, you can talk about good volley position and all the things that Steve will, you know, that causes us as a coach to say, gee, I wish I'd known that 20 years ago. So I think it comes down to education and college coaching is a very different skill set than being a club pro. And I think that the ITA can play a role in that level of, of instruction and sort of scientific knowledge about the game that maybe the club pro who's worried about merchandising his pro shop and, you know, getting his ladies clinic going. There's a lot of canics, administrative stuff that you have to do. So I think the ITA can play a role in pushing people toward that higher level, make it exciting. Let's let's be really really professional about it. And and uh, so that instead of uh, giving people, you have to fulfill these basic education requirements, say, no, how'd you like to be the best you can be? No, that's how we work with our team. We, we appeal to leadership qualities, even when they're young and they're not great leaders. Right. And we ought to appeal to our coaches in the same way to say, you know, you did it with the mentorship program this year. I thought that was a tremendous program. And we each, the mentors and the mentees, all learn from each other in the same way that in the great base method or something else, there's peer exchanges going on. So you're pushing each other. There's a kind of competition. So I, I love it. And the other thing I would add about the summer camps, Dave, is that the only thing we're lacking, we're, we're lacking a connection to simple competition. And if we could sort of reverse engineer it and say, look, let's have a weekly opportunity for simple competition and set our side, set aside our courts on Friday afternoon or Saturday morning for some kind of level-based play, then all the kids that come to the camp, they're not going away to their summer home. They come back here and they play some some events. And now it's that, you know, key, let's I'll race you to that streetlight nature of kids competing. They have fun. And then they, then they come back and they say, well, I didn't hit my backhand so good. <laughs> well, how can you learn that? Well, let's, let's take a look at this simple little tape of high, low, high on the Great Bay Fest and, and see if you could go out and hit some balls off a cone in, in your driveway mm-hmm. or on the tennis court or on the backboard. This gets back to the one lesson a week, not more, not an academy where they're telling you what to do every day. Mm-hmm. I do have one one quick anecdote and then I'll shut up. I one time asked a very, very prominent ITF coach whose son was a was a college coach. And I said, what do you think of American tennis, about American college tennis? And he said, well, the coaches are too active and the players are too passive. That There's a lot of truth in that. For sure. And, and you know, we, we think that we're the, the big orchestrators of stuff. But really, what you try to do is the great coaches have always prepared people in their practice beyond the needs of the competition. And then you let them go, you know, and yeah. and, and and you don't put yourself there as a prime you know, the prime actor. I look at the NCAs and these coaches can't sit still. You know, they're they're jumping on the court every time. Like, you know, I'm going to tell you what to do and you got to serve out wide here. And I've had players come back to me years later and say, Dave, it really used to tick me off when you didn't tell me what to do. He said, but then I got into business. I realized that I had to make decisions for myself and you were forcing me to keep making decisions. Mm -hmm. I said, he said, you'd tell me, you know what to do. Just do it now. Right. And so coaching is an art. And and Steve adds a lot of science to it, but there's a lot of art in it too. So anyway, a little random, but that's that's no food that's, for thought. 
That's great. And, and Steve, I guess similar question to you around bridging that gap between the recreational player and, and kind of the, the higher level college player. And how big is that divide? And, and is it as big as maybe coaches are thinking? I used to say a forehand's a forehand. Now the argument, people only really discuss the forehand. If you go to the internet, <laughs> you put it, if, you put it, if you put in modern forehand, you're going to get thousands and thousands of choices. You put in modern backhand, you're going to get a handful. I think the term pre-academy, uh, Dave knows I, I don't really like coaches being at a junior tournament and handing out business cards and being the third base coach. Nearly everybody wants to coach the kid who's about to be in the limelight. And we're talking about a 12 and under tournament. With, I think in Daniel Coyle's book, and this is sad in some ways, we talked the book, The Talent Code, talking about small pockets. We put up a very powerful clip the other day. Uh, Ashton Kruger, who's been, who was coached by Dave Anderson out in Dallas. I know Dave's had Dave Anderson. A lot of Dave's here. <laughs> Let me tell you a story about Dave here in a minute. But, uh, so Dave Anderson, he was in our tennis tech program. He was a classmate at Craig Tiley's. But if someone wanted to go to our Facebook from three or four days ago, she just won San Diego. And it's, to me, it's very emotional to go back and look how she hit the ball when she's eight years old. People should know. People, I get upset with that. People should know that. <laughs> yep. It's just really, really upsetting that. You know, I know the federations, they can help out, but it's just like stay the course. Start the course. Stay the course. Be brilliant with basics. I mean, there's so, so many uh, people that really don't get a good start. The great base is not about the Ashton Kruger. She got a great start, but she has to stay that great start. It's just amazing where people, you know, they get wowed. We get wowed and we have so many people that they've been to the mountaintop and they start working with, you know, highly recognized, you know, Dave said earlier, some of the prestigious title, but just let the kid, I mean, in other sports, um, like I grew up playing ice hockey. If you can't skate, you really can't play. And so, but in tennis, because, and again, I repeat myself all the time. If Crummy's playing Crummier, who wins? Crummy wins. <laughs> crummy, crummy, crummy doesn't know the Crummies. Crummy. <laughs> Like a, Dave talks about a gentleman who has target tennis. Uh, Dave, you could talk about him. But, you know, we, we have kids come in and they're highly ranked in their section and we put them through a tiebreaker test. I mean, they have to hit six shots. They come in there, we're feeding the ball 30 miles an hour. It's like this, we're feeding the ball to your forehand volley. The service box is, you know, it's 13 and a half by 21 and they can't hit a volley but you, you announce it you're feeding it and they can't hit it in the service park anyway with dave anderson's name being mentioned it's got dave mullins dave fish i'm working for dennis vandermeer we're training tennis coaches we had over 100 students and we had nine students named dave we had them all come out and he said all right if you'd all repeat your name he went down the road dave, <laughs> dave, dave. he said if you do it one more time he went, dave dave and there was a david dave and he just looked around like a good comedian he paused and he said all your parents are boring Sit down. <laughs> for a guy, for a guy like a guy with the name Steve Smith to tell that joke. I mean, <laughs> um, no, it, to me that my my drive. I mean, I just think of all the kids. They get a bad start in tennis. I mean, I remember the PTR USPTA. It's too easy to be a member. Certification is not education. No, it's, it's, we lose so many people to tennis. And Dave said earlier, $110 an hour. Ed Collins had this book years ago. Um, I think it was racket back, bend your knees, $20, please. And <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's too easy to, uh, it's too easy to, you know, become a tennis teaching pro. Well, and, especially yeah. in this country, right? In, in other countries, it's, it's not as easy, uh, but the barriers are very low here. But that, Steve, that's one of the things that I'd love to to get your take on as well. I mean, and you've talked about this a little bit on your podcast, you know, college player, 
freshman year, they've been recruited. Let's say they're a highly sought after recruit. There's holes in their game, but the coach's job is dependent upon them winning matches. And they obviously want them to win X number of matches over the next four years and contribute the team in a certain way. But that player may be better served making some technical changes in that first year. They might lose some more matches. They may not even play in the lineup, but you may see them take off and win you know, several more matches a year because of those changes. And Dave, I'm sure that's something you struggled with a little bit as a college coach. And, and so what advice would you give coaches, Steve, as to how to recognize what changes are to be made and then why they should make those changes and, and how they go implementing that. And I know it's situational. I guess I'm just speaking in general terms here. Well, I, I wouldn't be a very good recruiter because I'd go to the national tournament and say, well, I haven't seen anybody that doesn't need to take a year off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Years ago, the rule was to take a year off. Right. Stan Smith, Arthur Ashe, they won Wimbledon, the US Open, both of them. They did okay. Their freshman year, the rule was you you couldn't play as a freshman. You know, now it's um, it's backwards. I think of uh, Patrick Gibson, who I work as a supplemental coach. He was taught by Matt Clure, who I taught to teach tennis. I mean, he learned so much from his father growing up, but he's lived the great base. He's been immersed in the great base. He himself went to school early, but he was a kid who was living in a small town in Western Carolina. I think of um, Austin Krychek, who I coached from the time he was seven years old. He went to school early. I do think there's a lot of hype. I mean, when the, with colleges, uh, my son played Ohio State, and you know, they certainly have had a handful of kids that who got to be the point where they're the top two in the world. Um, how many kids do they have that have really made a living at it? So I think the key word, the curse is winning. You know, John Wooden, the late John Wooden, he never mentioned that word. And, you know, I think it's just wrong when a kid shows up on a college campus. If we looked at basketball and we looked at football, I mean, uh, Tom Brady spent a lot of time in Boston. Dave Fish must be a Tom Brady fan. He was a fifth string quarterback at Michigan. He was a, he was a red shirt. Yeah, this instant, you know, instant tennis to microwave it, it's not going to work. So I think just to teach people a perspective. And but I think that it's, it's wrong on many, many levels for a young player uh, to think that they're going to go from, you know, you know, doing really well at Kalamazoo or San Diego and then skyrocket to the pros. Um, I really think that college tennis should be looked at. And now with people staying fit, people are playing longer. You know, I heard Rajiv Ram on a, a podcast. I've never had anything to do with his game, but he, he went to Illinois. He was only there one semester. And, you know, I helped Tylee back, back in the day when everybody was recruiting him. And he, he could have benefited if he stayed there longer. And now he's saying that if he, as we said in the podcast, he looks back and he's got to be 35, 36 years old and he's done so well. I think he could have done even better if he didn't go in as a freshman. He came in January. And I, I think there's something wrong with that. So maybe the rules could be changed. I mean, for a, for a kid to come in January to go back to slow the process down. You love the process. The process will love you. But the process should not be, well, I'm too good to go in the fall. So I'm just going to go in January. The team should be very, very bigger than the individual. With even coaches selling out and telling kids, well, when you come to our school, we'll take, take you to Futures in the fall. I mean, I think that's just Bozo the clown. I mean, they come to your campus, they should be going to class, they should be part of the team, and they should learn how to play better. I think that coming back to another Dave, Dave Anderson, in one of our podcasts, he said the theme shirt for tennis should be back to the future because there was a lot of things that were done. And we, were, we were way off on the forehand grip. I mean, I think of sitting with Welby Van Horn, his nursing home when he was 90. He knew he was wrong. He changed people from an Eastern grip to a continental grip. He called it the beginner's grip and the championship grip. But he knew he was wrong. 
he did so many things right, but he knew he was wrong. He still studied the game in 90. But when he was teaching, there was uh, wooden rackets and three out of the four grand slams were on grass. And it used to be where like a labor at Wimbledon, they'd be wearing spikes the second week. I mean, there's no way they're going to let the ball bounce. So I think people really need to study the game. But you, you can watch some of the best tennis players in the world, and they definitely have holes in their game. But when or when are they going to be addressed? So I, I do think that there's no quick fix. The way the brain works, we, we know that now is that the athletes are biochemically got to deprogram, reprogram. And I don't, I just don't think it's developmental. I mean, college coaches are professing that word developmental, and they pick up they pick up a kid up from the airport, and two weeks later they're taken to the tournament. It's, it should be like junior tennis is over. We really respect what you accomplish in junior tennis. But now this is college tennis. And college tennis is much, much tougher animal than junior tennis mm. in so, so many ways. Kid shows up and he can't play three or four easy matches. He shows up and he's got to play really well in a dual match. Dave, I mean, how did you manage that, I guess, decision-making process? A freshman shows up, you know, yeah. they're pretty good. You know, you want them to be in their li- in your lineup, but you see some holes. How, how did you sort that out when you were coaching? Yeah, well, my bet was always sort of development. So I, sometimes I, I jumped in and said, well, this is what your game could be a year from now or two years. And it didn't always come out well. You'd try to try to work with something because if that person felt, now I want to stick with what I do, or they were highly recruited and they come in and they want to play right away, there's a dynamic tension there for college coaches. So having been in that, understanding the giant role of recruiting now of trying to persuade someone to come to your place. These coaches at the top level are, are fighting for flesh. It's like Cameron Norrie. I remember when he was out there and the coaches were it was like a feeding frenzy mm-hmm. around him. How can they do it? And whose program is going to be made based on that? That's not going to be the environment that Steve's talking about. And yet, despite all that competition at this ferocious top level, you still see people like Dominic Kopfer coming out who, as I understand, was 100 in Germany in the juniors. And uh, Mark saw him, went over, and Mark Boris, very fine young coach. Everybody's young to me now. Um, but, you know, he took him under, and the kid was number six his freshman year. By the end, he's, he's number one in the country. Well, he's got great foundation for, you know, I wouldn't say that in front of Steve. Steve would know all the holes in his game. But he looks damn good to me. And he's tough, and he's strong, and he's, he's uh, well-conditioned and fights hard. And so they're tons of kids in college that can do that. And so I just think that we have a system that is kind of pieced together like piecemeal and we don't really work together. And in the efforts, I know that the ITA is working hard with, with the USTA now to see, can we coordinate these things better for it? Can we make opportunities more available at a at an appropriate level for a kid? Can we, can we give a kid that wins a college event a an appropriate wild card into a pro event so that the coaches aren't doling out wild cards as recruiting chips, but rather the association is saying, if a kid wins the ITA fall championships, the All-Americans, can that kid, whether he's foreign or not, can that kid go into an appropriate level? So the whole system is what people want to be a part of. Mm. The whole system will start to lift many more people up. And if we recognize how incredibly productive the American college system is, even with our flaws, even with the 20 hour per week rule, nobody ever said you can't be out on court more than 20 hours. We just said the coaches can't be working with you more than 20 hours. Right. And people use that as a kind of excuse. But the good players like James Blake, people like that, they're, they're, they're putting in more, more time than that. 
and they can do it. And, it's, and, it, and it develops their intrinsic muscles mm. to do it. So it's all just, can we put this system together more intelligently, make this philosophy more available to people? Because hell, a lot of young coaches are just trying to move from one job to another. They're just trying to pay for their family. Yeah. So we have to we have to sort of subvert them into learning uh, so that they actually get a different picture of a puzzle that's not all about winning. Mm-hmm. And if they do that, like John Wooden, they will become much better coaches. And a lot of coaches would say, I, I wish I'd known that younger in my career. Mm-hmm. And so the mentorship program that you have, all that, all those are, are different connective tissue to, to building stronger player development philosophies and opportunities. I'd love to get your takes on, and, and you've given a lot of amazing information and advice to coaches, but we recognize that the college coach does have a role to play in their tennis community. I mean, I look at my time at the University of Oklahoma and rightly or wrongly, I was put up on a pedestal of being, you know, one of the top coaches, say, within that area. And I have a certain level of influence and I think coaches all around the country do. So how, how do they maybe take advantage of that influence and what role do they play, I guess, in the the tennis ecosystem as a whole, not just in the, the college tennis Bubble. It's a terrific question because years ago, Dick Gould was always in the forefront of thinking, but he said, I want to tell you, coaches, nobody has a, a divine right to have a Division One program. Mm-hmm. He said, the times are going to change. And that's why he endowed every scholarship at Stanford, way ahead of everybody else. Other people say, well, no, you know, I, I have a right to just concentrate on my coaching. Well, that's not true anymore because now you have to be, my dad used to have a phrase, we have to be the chief cook and bottle washer here. We've got to be able to do everything. And so the coach that just wants to coach, that's not enough anymore because he is already on a pedestal in the community, but he also has the, he has the ear of people in a way that has the ability to draw people together, to work together, to help to build good events that, that nourish the community, the tennis village, in addition to his team. And the teams that we've lost often have been the coaches that really didn't build connections into the community. You know, we, we say, we, we sometimes think it's an easy answer. Well, this, these guys were all international, so they didn't, they didn't, nobody wanted to care to support that program. Well, that really wasn't true. The coaches that build connections to the community and the community would come out and have that young man from Germany or Serbia come over to their house for dinner and they play in a round robin with them. Those were people. They weren't just foreigners. And it's the ability to connect to your, I mean, that alone would help our world right now if we stopped looking at everybody as different than we are and say, we have the ability, these international players are what can make college tennis the best training ground anywhere next to sitting in Europe. So I, I think there are a lot of conversations we need to grow up and understand, for instance, when you talk about all these international kids that are sitting at the Weill Academy or they're sitting down at IMG or they're sitting at Voluntaries, they're not allowed to play in USDA events but above a certain, say, level six. These kids are desperate. And, and those are the very same people that if they were in France, they would be making the French juniors better every single day. And so to not be using those kids, not be giving them access to competition and having our kids be able to sharpen their teeth against them, that's just foolishness. You know, and the same thing, not having a place for our where our post-college players can compete, can continue to compete locally. That's foolish too. That's like throwing out a resource in your backyard and letting a car rust back there when you've put in thousands and thousands of dollars into the development of that player. 
Right. So th- those are all the connective tissue that has built the European system over 60 years. Mm. We're just kind of, we're kind of slow to the, <laughs> to the table here, but yeah. it's right in front of us. We have, uh, and, and to see the USDA creating this tennis United is great, but it's still a high level conversation. It's not, it's not down enough into the weeds to connect people locally. And that's the only difference. That's, that's where tennis is going to flourish again. The, the, all these seeds are dormant. They're not dead. And, and Steve, do you have a, a take on that? Kind of what role could a college coach play within the, I guess, the greater tennis ecosystem or should play maybe? Well, the, obviously, they're, they're in the role of an ambassador. They can showcase high-level tennis. So many things. Um, with foreign players, I've always been a supporter. Okay, it's great. That makes American tennis better to have a higher level. The spear of the rule in junior college tennis at one time here in Florida you only have two foreign players on a team, very much like the club system in Europe. I think there's international flavor to meet people from all over the world. You know, the, the foreign players that come over, they're not necessarily better. They just say yes to the first opportunity where the American kid has a wish list. And then some college coaches, they don't have the budget to wine and dine one of, one of the top kids. And then with the expression, well, I want to get a horse in the corral. You know, they just want, they want, they want a player to say yes, because the kids are all being very polite to the five or six coaches. Yes, I'd like to come. I'd like to come. And they're just, um, I think in the Ivy Leagues, uh, a lot of people are waiting to see what Harvard says. And if they can't go to Harvard, then maybe they go to Cornell, not to upset Cornell. But I think with it, being a college coach is not as, to me, is not as easy to be as being a junior coach. If you're a college coach, first of all, they show up when they're 18. They're on a college campus. They're away from home. Uh, you know, now juniors have spent more time away from home, but now there's a whole different world. I mean, they, the academics are tougher. If they, they're living in a dorm and a next door neighbor in the dorm wants to go celebrate Tuesday because it's Tuesday and they want to go celebrate Wednesday because it's Wednesday. So <laughs> the, the, part, the partying that college kids can do. But I think being a college coach, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a tougher challenge because you're, is, it is more, Dave touched upon, it's more art and science. You're working within a player's game more so than you are with a player. But I do think that the college coaches need to realize that there's a difference between, like, say, their camp and their team. In some ways, there's so many similarities. But I, I think one throughout tennis, and Dave's touched upon it down to the weeds, is a lot of times the decision makers, I mean, they haven't put sunscreen on for 25 years. You know, they haven't been, they haven't been on the court. And they're making decisions about teaching tennis. They're just being so pretentious. I mean, Rocky won. Are you a pretender or are you a contender? We, you, have, you have people making the wrong decisions. If you haven't taught tennis, you shouldn't be making decisions on how tennis is going to be taught. Mm-hmm. Like say with little kid tennis, it's a really fun game. If you're not, not that advanced, we're going to call it softball. And, you know, that certainly could be sexist and chauvinistic um, because girls will play softball and boys will play baseball. But one is faster than the other. So you have kids play underhand. So one kid just becomes a human ball machine. Well, if you're a college coach and you're, um, you're dealing with 18-year-olds, you're, you're not a trench pro who's been working with seven, eight-year-olds, but you will be when you run your camp. So you have to have expertise for your camp. So we have a little kids play, okay, two eight-year-olds going out to play, for example, they're playing the human ball machine or they're playing softball player against a tennis player. And it can be just for the rally. We're not even going to put the serve in play because with little kid tennis, people should not be serving in the box. You know, that's like having a, a four-year-old try to ride a regular bicycle. You know, you really should say, okay, if you're going to serve, you can serve, stand in the middle of the baseline and you can serve anywhere in the tennis court. And you can even say in little kid tennis, you have to put your palm in this position. You can, you can make a rule of, okay, you got to shadow swing once. 
You got to salute, comb your hair one time, and then you serve. So for those type of things to happen, you know, Dave, uh, I know I, you asked me to put this in writing. I need, still need to send it to you. It's a form tournament. Dennis Vandermeer was a genius in so many ways. So we, we, what we do is we copy, copy, copy. And Dennis Vandermeer, you know, we can take Welby Van Horn's balance and big grade in science, but the group dynamics of Dennis Vandermeer, he's going to give those little buggers a prize. And that's what you do in a form tournament. And they're like soldiers. Just, they want the prize. And you put them <laughs> on teams and you have all sorts of fun. So I really think that uh, when, when a young player shows up on a college campus, they should be told that they need to learn how to teach tennis. Even if that's not the career path that they want to take, that they should be able, once they're done with college tennis, they should be altruistic and they should be able to give back to the game. The game is giving them so much. They have this opportunity to play on a beautiful college campus, like Olympic Village. So I think the college coaches, we're all going to learn. We're not too cool for school. We're all going to learn how to help young people play. And, you know, that that's uh, something that's just not done. I do think I heard this today, two E's, ego and entitlement. I think that junior tennis players don't grow up being on a team and they actually get too much attention. And a lot of times it's not the, the junior player who changes, but the better they become, the people surrounding them give them so much attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the college coach needs to know, they need to have the skill set to how to help people who would say they're going to have a, a, a free clinic. They're going to have a free clinic, an exhibition, get people out. They have a beautiful facility. They have all the amenities to, to cover that. But at the, let, let's take a time out and we should be able to show, show okay, the ready position. And that's gone away. Ready position, unit turn. The interrelationship of strokes, interrelationship of spins. You know, I don't think it's a matter of teaching style. I think it's just like the alphabet. This is A. We agree on the sound and the shape. You know, we can go to the numerical system. Is two plus two four? And I think that's where the college players it should be the college coach's responsibility to make sure that their players can teach the basics. That would be a way to give back to the community. It would be a way to help their camp. And if someone starts doing that type of thing when they're a freshman, by that time they're a senior, it'd be really, really impressive. Jim Burdick, he's one of our heroes, the late Jim Burdick. I know, Dave, when you were putting the Hall of Fame, Doug Burdick was there, correct? Yes. He, he was putting the Hall of Fame. And when he had a freshman, he, you know, I, I don't really like where the, the number seven, number eight, they're just being a cheerleader. They should have a clipboard. You know, they don't have to necessarily, and I think like, say, a manager, you don't have to have a manager who's carrying the Gatorade and the first aid kit or whatever. The players don't need a manager to do that. They don't need someone to take a subservient role. But the, the person who's number eight on the team, you build a team from the bottom and that player should be able to film and chart and again, teaches information transfer. The biggest resource is young people. And you know, we, we don't really believe in the KISS method. I say it all the time, keep it simple, stupid. The kids are not stupid. And if, you know, that, that needs to be done where it's like, no, it's not about you. You know, that's where, you know, that, that there's no, no I in team. And I do think that they, but they grow up where their parents become a chaperone, a, a chauffeur. They, it's, you know, they're not riding on a bus. They're not on the depth chart. They're not crawling their way up from the freshman team to the JV team, like in basketball. I can't tell you how many kids that had come to visit me and they're, they're going to be a freshman in high school and they're number one on their tennis team. And they're really just an average player. It's, you know, it's like, well, they're too, it'd be, that, that's a major problem where you, you know, kids are not playing high school tennis anymore too. I mean, that's yeah. just, I mean, I, they are playing, but you know, I don't want to discourage anyone, but if, you know, if someone's playing high school tennis in most situations, 
that means they're not going to be playing high level college. Time. And then, you know, what, how, what we were producing years ago, and I know when tennis became an Olympic sport, now tennis is more global. Tennis is definitely not where it was many, many years ago. But in the US, we used to have in the 70s, 70 plus men in the Wimbledon main draw. Sometimes now we're, we're less than seven. And, you know, granted, tennis has exploded around the world, but, you know, kids used to just play, they used to play multiple sports. You know, then, you know, there's, a, you know, right now, if you go out and you just hit a tennis ball way up in the air and now, say, you got a group of 10 players, you hit a ball way up in the air and say, okay, it's a pop fly. Can you catch it? I mean, in this country years ago, if you didn't play baseball, you can still play baseball. I mean, you could still play, you can still catch a ball, throw a ball. So, you know, I, I just think that, you know, even the USTA, they were not player development prior to 1987. I think the player development program, I mean, it, there should be some votes on, well, maybe we'll drop that and we're going to find a way to police and regulate grassroots level teaching and educate the consumer. The consumer, the consumer, they're blindly writing checks. The consumer doesn't have consumer knowledge. For the most part, and this is where people get mad at me, the teacher doesn't have product knowledge. If they had product knowledge, you know, we put this on Facebook today, Big Braden. You measure, you define a program by how the worst kid in the program plays. That was just classic grade. You know, if the kid buys the ice cream cone, they put it in the middle of the forehead. I mean, but you teach them already, you should teach them a unit turn. You should be able to teach them basic. You know, they shouldn't be going out and having somebody, you know, just give them a bunch of garbage and say, this is how you hit a forehead. Well, I could go all day with you guys. Uh, unfortunately, I have to, to land this plane. Uh, I see Steve behind you. Uh, many books. Can you give one book every college coach should read? I would say uh, Teaching Children, Dick Brainway. Okay. Dave Fish, same question to you. What's one book every college yeah. coach should read? Well, I, I'm going to give you two books. Uh, okay. One is the inner game of the inner game of tennis. It's worth mm -hmm. rereading a hundred times. Yep. And uh, one that I'm just into now, something called Top Dog, uh, which mm. I just picked up. Someone had sent it to me, but it's a brilliant discussion of competition, which is what I'm most interested in now. Is how do we compete? Mm -hmm. uh, what are the pluses and the minuses? What are the stressors? How do men and women compete differently? It's a fascinating book and written yeah. by two two good writers. Poe and Bronson, right? I would recommend right? that. Yes, exactly. Very yeah, good. And, great book. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we have to be lifetime learners. And that mm -hmm. tends to be what, especially if you're working with bright young people, you have to have more than just your tennis. Um, that, that's how you capture them. Well, you know, one thing yeah. on the on Tim Galloway's book, Inner Tennis, you know, the doer and the teller, self one, self two, the, the teller needs to shut up. And the doer, <laughs> these are the basics. And I do think that, you know, common sense and nonsense is, I mean, there's been NFL coaches where if their players did not have a copy of Galloway's book in their hand during the summer tryouts or the summer training, they'd be fined. They had to have the book with them at all times. But I think that's another thing too, is that I'm sitting in this tennis library, people need to read and they, we, we have to go back. The book I mentioned, uh, Teaching Children Vic Braden Way, Probably can't even find it unless, I mean, you really dig and dig and dig. But the dimensions of the court and physical laws, they haven't changed. So, yeah. you know, I, that's where, you know, people say, well, this is how you get a four. And I said, well, maybe that's how a snake goes down a hole, but that's not how you get a four. <laughs>
<laughs> well, I think that's a, a good note to leave it on. Uh, yes. yeah, yeah, well, Dave and Steve, thank you so much for your time today, helping to educate our coaches. Uh, I learned a, a lot, as I always do when I when I listen to you guys speak. I know, Dave, you've been on on, on Steve's podcast as well, so I'll, I'll link yes. that up in our coach education newsletter because I think that's a fascinating conversation. And I and, uh, just want to thank you guys for all the work that you're doing in the tennis space. Uh, great ambassadors for our sport and, and I feel like uh, our sport is so much better off because you guys are in it so thank you thank you so much for listening I encourage you all to follow Steve's work at greatbasetennis.com and subscribe to the Great Base Tennis Podcast we hope to see you back here in another three weeks